song's pretty fitting as we look at what Paul is talking about today, in particular his own cries at the end, and we'll get to that as we go, but can we just acknowledge that sometimes as Christians we lose? We don't lose ultimately, but sometimes in the battle, in the moment, we get knocked down. We do lose battles. But praise God, our enemy is already defeated because Christ has already won. As we uh, begin here, let me draw your attention to Ephesians chapter 6. We're continuing in our All for One series. And once again, we are looking at the armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, I'll be reading verses 10 to 20. The Apostle Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. And always keep on praying. Be alert. And always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me. That whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, as we open your word today, Some of us right now feel like maybe we've been losing in the battle. Some of us have taken wounds. We've been beaten down. Others have been winning battles left and right. And others can look upon them and say, wow, they're amazing. How do they do it? They're so strong. Remind us, Father, that none of us are strong enough for this fight. Not even the Apostle Paul. So help us not to pretend. Help us not to put others on pedestals. But to come together, remembering that we're a family, we're a team. We're in this fight together. And it's not a fight against the things of this world, but against the powers behind this world. Lord, guide us today as we 
read your word, we study your word, we seek to understand you. I pray that in this moment, Father, you would silence any deceiving voices, anything that would exalt itself above and against the knowledge of you. Clear our minds. Help us to receive what you say to us by your Spirit in your word. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. As we, uh, <clears throat> as we near the end of our study in Ephesians, we've reached the end of our suit-up mini-series here in the armor of God. This armor that God's provided for us for our spiritual warfare. Now, just as we did back in Ephesians 1, we've been spending the last several weeks kind of hovering here in chapter 6 as we tried to get a, a biblical and practical understanding of what Paul is saying to the Ephesian church and what God is saying to us about the spiritual war in which we constantly find ourselves. As we come to the end of this section, Paul brings up the idea of prayer. Now, we're going to need to understand how his call to prayer fits with the idea of the passage as well as how it connects to the rest of the letter. All right, so we're focusing specifically here on Ephesians 6, 18 to, through 20. And our memory verse is there in 6, 18. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And then Paul adds this, Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the, the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Now as he is telling us this and, and drawing our attention into this life of prayer, his main idea, the, the change that he wants to see in us, hinges on this core reality. The key to spiritual victory is constant reliance on the God who fights for us. The key to spiritual victory is constant reliance on the God who fights for us. In other words, prayer is how we employ God's armor in battle. God gives us the armor, we put it on, we take up the sword. How do we do this? How do we use this gear, so to speak, that God's given us? We do so through prayer. So this is what Paul wants his reader to understand and therefore to do. Now my purpose today is to try to connect the dots of employing the armor to stand in victory through prayer. So first, if we're going to do that, let's take a moment to just quickly define what we mean by victory or the victorious Christian life. What it does not mean is that life becomes easy. What it does not mean is that if you have enough faith, God will just pour prosperity into your lap, and you'll get to drive a nicer car and all your kids will obey and the dog will never have an accident on the floor. It does not mean any of those things. Here's what it means. 
The victorious Christian life is a life of freedom to fulfill our God-given purpose in Christ. I'll give you a moment in case you want to jot that down because some of you might want to understand what this victorious Christian life is. It's a life of freedom to fulfill our God-given purpose in Christ. This means because we have been set free in Christ from sin and united to Christ, we're able to glorify and enjoy fellowship with God regardless of the circumstances of this life. The victorious Christian life is not about getting better circumstances. It's not about being happy in every moment of life. Anyone who tells you that God's plan for your life is for you to be happy all the time, that that's God's primary purpose is for you to be happy, they're trying to sell you something. It's not true. It's not biblical. If that were the case, then God must have really disliked Jesus. God brings us through the circumstances because there is a higher purpose. And the victorious Christian life isn't about changing the circumstances. It's about glorifying and enjoying God regardless of the circumstances. That's the freedom. So Paul calls us to stand against the devil's schemes for which we'll need to actively put on and take up what God provides for our victory. Now we see this in this armor. There's a, there's a provision. God gives it to us. It's His armor. So we put on the full armor of God. But there's this activity part, this responsibility for us of taking up that armor, putting it on, taking hold of the sword. We have to act on it. God never calls us to sit around and pray. He calls us to pray and then move. Paul says, stand up against the devil's schemes. You've got to actively put on and take up what God provides for your victory. Understand that the devil hates the church. And when I say the church, I don't mean necessarily this building or an organization. He hates those who belong to Christ as defectors from his kingdom. Paul's already told us in chapter 2 that all of us used to belong to this kingdom. We used to belong to the kingdom of darkness. Our default mode, when we're good people, just not very religious folks, you know, I, you know, I try to do good and God knows that I'm doing my best. Our default mode is that we are spiritually dead. We are owned by the prince of this world. And what brings us from death to life is the grace of God to us in Christ. The devil hates the church as defectors from his kingdom and wants to shipwreck our faith and paralyze us by deceiving, discouraging, and distracting us. He deceives us by undermining truth. Therefore, Paul says, gird yourselves, wrap yourselves up with this belt of truth. When we have truth holding everything together, then we have a defense when the devil seeks to deceive us. Further, he discourages our hearts with accusations and intimidations. And Paul says, get that breastplate on. You need to be covered up 
with the understanding that you are protected by Christ's righteousness. Not your own. Boy, I would be in really shoddy shape here if I was wearing a breastplate of my own righteousness because it's full of holes. My very best is like filthy rags to a holy God. It's not my righteousness. It's the breastplate of righteousness that I receive in Christ. It protects our hearts from the discouragement of accusations and intimidations. We see also that he distracts us by taking our focus off of our gospel mission. Paul says, have your feet fitted. Get your shoes on. Get your combat boots laced up with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. We have been given the gospel, the good news, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And in being reconciled to God, He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Since we know what it is to fear God, and we know what it is to have received grace, we got to have a passion for other people. I'm nothing more than a beggar who found a place to get bread, and I want to tell everybody else, here's where you get the bread. And if we're not willing to take on that mission, then I have serious doubts about whether we've actually encountered that grace. The devil wants to distract us from that mission, to get us to think that this life is about literally anything else. To that end, our job becomes an idol that takes our eyes off of God. Our pleasure becomes an idol that takes our eyes off of God. Our family, our children, our marriage, good things from God can become idols that distract us from our purpose in Him. Or they can become the greatest blessings ever as we learn to glorify God and enjoy fellowship with Him in the family according to His standards. We overcome these things with God's armor. To do battle, we have to guard our minds by placing our confidence in Christ and not ourselves for our salvation. That's that helmet of salvation. We have to take up the shield of faith as well because the devil's going to constantly launch attacks. Paul calls them here flaming arrows, flaming darts. And we quench those things with the shield of faith. And what is faith? but aligning our minds to the reality of God's truth. When we get past our circumstances and we begin to see reality as God sees reality, we can take the long view of things. We can begin in a new way that we couldn't possibly get with our regular human short-term view. Man, life is hard. I got bills to pay. My boss is a jerk. My wife doesn't understand me. My husband doesn't appreciate me. All of the things that come in that that plague our minds, the shield of faith overcomes when we remind ourselves of what is true even when we don't see it. Faith is being certain of what we hope for and sure of what we don't yet see. It's not blind. It's not foolish. It's the evidence of the history of God dealing with His people that gives us reason to trust when our eyes can't see and our feelings betray us. 
we also need to diligently take up God's Word as our weapon, trusting the Holy Spirit to empower us as we do. Now, Paul points out that the way to employ this armor in battle is through prayer. The key to spiritual victory is constant reliance on the God who fights for us. So, if you have a translation other than the NIV or the New Living Translation or uh, perhaps the Message, if you have an ESV or an older translation, it probably says something along the line of, instead of, and pray, it says praying or through prayer. We do these things, we take up the Word through prayer. That seems to be a better rendering than what the, the NIV has. Because Paul's idea here is that prayer is not some separate thing. I think Bunyan gets it wrong in the Pilgrim's Progress when he refers to all prayer as a separate part of the armor. I don't think he's seeing what Paul's saying that the prayer is how we wield it. The prayer is how we engage in the battle. The prayer is our confidence in God, our reliance on Him, our owning our dependence on God to fight our battles for us. You may remember in the last couple of weeks we looked at 2 Chronicles chapter 20. You don't have to turn there. You can look it up later. You're adults, most of you. Eh, not you. You can still look it up, though. And in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, uh, the enemies of God are coming against the people of Israel, and Jehoshaphat's like, I don't know what to do. He's the king, but he's overwhelmed. Too big a force. We can't fight this. So what does he do? He gathers the people, and they pray. And they pray. And they say, God, we don't know what to do. We're stuck. You tell us what to do, and we'll do it. And God says... Put on your armor. Go. Run to the battle. But rest assured, the battle's not yours. It's the Lord's. I will fight the battle for you. And when they get there, the battle's already over. The enemies have killed each other because God stepped in and confused them so that all that was left for the people of God to do was to take up the plunder. But they had to obey to get to that place. Let's get into this idea of prayer as Paul is giving it to us here. So, first, notice this. Prayer unleashes divine power against the enemy. Prayer unleashes divine power against the enemy. Paul elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 10 writes that our weapons, they're, they're not normal weapons. We don't fight like the world. We fight with divine power. It's the power of God unleashed. That's how we do battle. So what is prayer? Notice this. Prayer is a relationship-based communication with God. It's a relationship-based communication with God. So what is prayer not? If it's a relationship-based communication with God, that means it's not some magic incantation. It's not say the right words 
and God must provide. We get that mentality sometimes, like God is some sort of cosmic vending machine. You put in the right amount, and He kicks out your, your prayer selection. Give me C6. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is a relationship-based communication. And all that relationship entails, right? So sometimes, I'm, I'm a married man, and I enjoy being a married man, so sometimes the best communication that I can have with my wife is, honey, I love you. But if all I ever say to my wife is, honey, I love you, Eventually, she's like, oh, is there any more to the conversation? If our prayer to the Lord is just, I love you, I love you, I love you. If our songs in worship are nothing more than, I love you, I love you, I love you, and repeat. Then there's no depth in the communication. It's a reflection of a relationship that is lacking. Because that I love you is a cheap out instead of a meaningful communication. Because I'm in a real relationship with my wife, sometimes the communication is, honey, what do you need me to do today? I don't usually say, honey, she takes that sarcastically because I usually mean it sarcastically. So, what do you need me to do today? And for my wife in particular, whose primary love language is acts of service, that means a whole lot more than, honey, I love you. I want to show you. How do I show you? I want to do the things that mean something to you. Sometimes the communication is, man, I had a really lousy day today. I just want to talk to you. Can we just sit and talk? Because I'm hurting right now. This person really let me down. Or I really messed up. What am I going to do? And a lot of times, especially if you're married, or if you're human, the right communication in the relationship is, I am really sorry. I messed up. Will you please forgive me? Can we try this again? Prayer is very much like that. All the things that come along with the relationship as part of the communication. Not only going to God saying, gimme, 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 gimme. I love my children. If that's all they ever say to me, eventually we're going to have a deeper conversation. Because the relationship is flawed. And we need to get a better understanding. But sometimes it does involve that. Hey, I need something. You're my provider. Daddy, can you... Can you pay for this thing? Can you get me this thing? Not a crusted gecko, Emma, if you're listening. <laughs> Paul says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. That's kind of important for us to recognize. That's our second point here. There is never a wrong time to pray. There's never a wrong time to pray. It's a relationship-based communication, so we pray in the Spirit. We pray because God has chosen and adopted us as His children. That's what Paul says in the very first part of chapter 1. And because He's chosen and adopted us as His children, He has sealed us with His Holy Spirit. His Spirit is in us. 
So when we pray in accordance with the Spirit, that means that we are in alignment with God. We are His children and we're walking in fellowship with Him. That's what we're talking about when we say pray in the Spirit. It's not some magical, mystical thing that there's a separate category of prayer of praying in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit is I'm, I'm aligned with God in fellowship because I'm in a relationship and my prayer matches that. It's in accordance with that. And there's never a wrong time. Pray on all occasions, at all times. Is there a wrong time for me to communicate better with my wife? To communicate with my children? It's important. God doesn't say pray when you're at church. You should never pray when, pardon me, you're in the bathroom, right? Sometimes we get this idea that we should never pray at certain times, and we should only pray at these other times. Paul says pray on, on all occasions, because we're always in the battle, aren't we? The devil doesn't take a break so that you can go to the bathroom. The devil doesn't take a break so that you can just relax for a minute. He's constantly looking for an opening. Isn't that what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5.8? You need to be watching out. You need to be alert, on guard, because your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's just looking for you to let your guard down so he can pounce. So pray on all occasions. And with all kinds of prayers and requests, there's never a wrong time to pray. But is there a wrong way? He says, with all kinds of prayers and requests. So some of you have grown up in a background where you've been told it's selfish to pray for yourself. You should never ask God for things. Man, I got five kids and seven and a half grandchildren, right? One do any second. Not during the sermon, preferably. I don't want them to be afraid to ask me for things. Now, I don't want them to only ask me for things. But I love when they come and say, Grandpa, can we get an ice cream? Dad, can we go to a ball game? That's a powerful communication in prayer. And so there are lots of ways for us to pray. God's not looking for you to nail the formula. How many of you grew up reciting the Lord's Prayer? Anybody? Turn there if you would. Matthew 6. Matthew 6. We could go to Luke, but I'm going to take you to Matthew. Keep in mind these things that we're talking about here. There's prayer unleashes divine power against the enemy. It's a relationship-based communication with God. There's never a wrong time to pray. Right? We're going to talk about whether there's a wrong way in just a moment. See what he says here. Matthew 6, starting with verse 5. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. So that sounds like there might be a wrong way, isn't there? For they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by others. 
Now, some of you have been told praying publicly is not okay. Some of you haven't been told that, but you have gotten into your minds and hearts that praying publicly is a thing for show. Maybe you read this and you're like, man, I don't want anybody to hear me pray because, you know, I don't want them to think less of me or I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to say these things the right way. And as we've talked about, for those of you who have been in our, in our study groups, when we pray together, it's brothers and sisters talking to daddy. When the hypocrites pray here, they're praying so that they can be seen by others. That's a show. The purpose is for you to notice my prayer, to see how holy and pious I am. But when brothers and sisters are talking to daddy, I don't care how you sound or how I sound, because we're all in this together. We continue. He says, Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. You did it for others, so their notice of you is the reward. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Again, the point isn't so much the secrecy as the focus on communication between you and Daddy relationship-based communication, not performance-based speaking. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward, you, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. That doesn't mean we can't have lengthy prayers when we're talking to God in the prayer closet. I mean, stop using pointless repetition, thinking that if you say it enough times, or if you say the right combination, if I just keep saying it, if I just keep saying it, Lord, Lord, Jesus, Lord, Lord, Jesus, if I say these things, that somehow that's going to finally get God's attention. He missed the first seven paragraphs, but this time it was enough. That's what the pagans do, and some of you may remember the, uh, the co confrontation that Elijah had with the prophets of Baal as they wept and cried and, and beat themselves and cut themselves to try to get the attention of their false god. That's what the pagans do. They use a lot of ceremony, a lot of pomp and circumstance, trying to put on a show, using many words, babbling. We often will sometimes call it praying in tongues when it's just babbling. I'm not denying what the Holy Spirit does, but there's an awful lot that human flesh does. And if it's nonsense to the people around you, and you're in a public setting, it's nonsense to God as well. That's from the flesh. That's for a, a different day. We can talk about that. Or you can check in on the podcast and send us a message, and we'll talk about it there. When you pray, don't keep babbling like pagans. They think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Again, when we're praying, understand this is relationship-based communication. It is not an information-based informing God of what we need because He knows better than you do what you need. He knew it before you thought it, before you felt it, before you were born. 
not informing God of anything. We're owning our dependence on Him because of our relationship. So the relationship is the focus. This then is how you should pray, verse 9. Now, some of us grew up memorizing and reciting this and repeating it, and I'm not in any way saying that that's not a good thing, but Jesus is not giving this to us, saying, recite these words for your prayer. This is not the formula that works. This is a model to explain how relationship-based communication with God operates. Notice how he starts, our Father relationship. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, revered, holy. We want to respect you. We want to know you for who you are. The name of God is the identity of God. So we don't come to God as if he's the big guy in the sky, just looking for a, a, another handout. Hey, what's up, God? It's me. God, are you there? It's me, Margaret, you know. Some of you are old enough to remember that. We're not talking to our buddy. We are talking to our father, who is our daddy, but he is also the Lord of all creation. And we must never forget that. I remember uh, going to climb into my grandfather's lap as he sat in his chair. It was grandpa's chair. You don't sit in grandpa's chair. That's where grandpa is. And I went to climb into his lap and I always had a kind of reverence for my grandpa. He just seemed wise and strong. At the same time, I felt an intimate connection with him. I felt welcome to climb onto his lap. But I didn't talk the same way to grandpa as I talked to my brother and sister. There's a level of respect that goes along with that. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. I'm, I'm saying, Lord, your rule is what matters. Your reign, your dominion, do in me what you want to do. Do in this world through me, through your people, what you want to do. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Our provision is from God. These are requests. But notice, it's not, Lord, can you please give me a, a, you know, a, a new Tesla you know, and... Maybe can I get a private airplane and all that kind of... No. Give us our daily bread. Give us what we need. Don't give us more. We might become proud. Don't give us less that we might become covetous. Give us what we need. And forgive us our debts. You might say our transgressions however we render it here. It's what we owe that we can't pay. He's referring here to our sins. Lord, forgive us our sins. Forgive us. But don't miss the next part. As we also have forgiven our debtors. When we seek God's forgiveness, we need to be people who forgive as well. 
Those who receive grace must be people who give grace. And lead us not into temptation. We know that God never leads us into temptation. Temptation doesn't come from Him. He's not tempted by evil. But He does allow us to face it. Always providing a way out. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Notice those things are paired together. Very often I think we fall into this idea of of deliver us from the evil one as if we're asking God to protect us from the devils attacking our circumstances. And, And there's an element of that. But notice how it's paired with temptation. The devil uses your circumstances to get at your mind, to get at your soul. So it's really not about what happens to me as much as how I respond to that. Whether I respond in faith according to the Spirit or whether I respond in accordance to the flesh and do my thing instead of God's thing. This is the model prayer. Pray like this. Not necessarily pray this. Pray like this. Learn how to communicate with God rightly according to the relationship don't miss what he says at the end for if you forgive other people when they sin against you your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their sins your father will not forgive you there is a requirement boy we sure don't like relationships with requirements do we we like to spend a lot of time talking about god's unconditional love except for i keep seeing a lot of conditions God hates sin. We can't have it both ways. Now, He loves us enough that He gave us His Son to die in our place while we were still sinners, still His enemies. That's grace. But we can't continue in that sin and think that we've somehow now received grace. I can't continue to judge others and not forgive others if I'm expecting God to forgive me. Then it's just lip service. And it denigrates the relationship. All that in mind, I return to the question, is there a wrong way? There's never a wrong time. Is there a wrong way to pray? Notice this. The wrong kind of prayer neglects or distorts our relationship with God. The wrong kind of prayer neglects or distorts our relationship with God. We see in Matthew 6 that our bitterness, our unforgiveness can hinder our prayers because it's relationship-based. Turn a few pages to the right, more than a few. We're going to jump past Mark and uh, into the book of Luke. Go to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. To some who are confident of their own righteousness, that's a pretty good red flag for you right there. As soon as you see that confident of their own righteousness, you know something's coming. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee 
Now understand, at this time, when they hear the word Pharisee, they're thinking of the most pious, most religious, best people, best morals in the entire land. These are the guys, right? They're, we have a different image now because we've seen from this side of the cross, and we have a, a picture of them as empty religion, but the people of that day would be seeing these as the, the best Sunday school teachers you know. One's a Pharisee, the other's a tax collector. I don't think I have to explain tax collectors. We feel the same way about them now. <laughs> the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this <coughs> tax collector. Drama added. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. That pride neglects to own its dependence and reliance on God. Is there a wrong way to pray? Absolutely. Proud, arrogant prayer, God rejects. The desperate cry of the hurting, the lost, those who know they've messed up and are crying out for help, these are the prayers that touch God's heart. The prayers of his children, not of perfect people, a joke in itself. That's oxymoron. Perfect person is an oxymoron. You can be one or the other. You can't be both. When we pray in such a way as to neglect the relationship, or to distort the relationship as if God is not our Father who has adopted us as His children. Not children born of natural descent. Jesus is His only begotten Son. So we have no rights in ourselves. We have no place to say, God, I'm, I'm yours because I have this natural line. He chose us. He reached into the filth of our lives and said, this one's mine. And he opened our eyes and he softened our hearts so that we could receive the message that he was giving to us. Right now, some of you in this place are at that particular juncture. You've heard it. And maybe you're a good person, so to speak. But God is nudging you and he's saying, listen, all of your righteousness is filthy rags. And it's just going to weigh you down and take you to hell. You need me. And he's making you feel desperate right now. And maybe that's uncomfortable. Good. Desperation is always uncomfortable. And the only way we come to Christ is on our knees with empty hands. So if I'm not broken in my spirit, 
And I'm not ready. We grow through pain. Sometimes it's external. Eventually it has to be internal. And God moves us and he changes us. And he takes out our old heart and gives us a new one. The wrong kind of prayer neglects or distorts our relationship with God. In James 4, you don't have to turn there, but in James 4, um, James says, what, what causes the fights and quarrels among you? You want stuff and you don't have it. And so you become covetous. And he connects this with prayer. You ask, but you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you might spend what you get on yourself. There is a wrong way to pray. Selfish prayer. Shallow prayer. Rabbit's foot vending machine prayer. All of these neglect and distort our relationship with God. Notice as Paul is talking about prayer here in verse 18. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people, for all the saints. It's it's good for us to pray with requests, to pray for ourselves. But if that's all we pray for, then we're short-sighted and, and selfish. We need to pray in a deeper way. Notice this. We need to pray with our eyes open. Now, I know you were taught as a kid, you fold your hands, you bow your head, you close your eyes. That's so you don't get distracted. That's not in the Bible. That's because Grandma said, quit messing around, right? That's the point. It's to get you in the right position to pray. And some folks pray on their knees. That doesn't make God hear it more. It changes your heart. Your physical position can impact that. So when we humble ourselves by getting into this uncomfortable position, uh, uh, position of submission on our knees that's beneficial to us at times does the bible tell us we have to no jesus didn't mention that at all here but the attitude of submission is necessary we need to pray with our eyes open not necessarily in that moment but open to what's going on around us he says with this prayer in mind with this spiritual battle in mind as you're praying on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests, keep your eyes open. Be alert. Be awake. Be on guard. Be on watch. Because you're in a battle. You don't get to play civilian in this war zone. And always keep on praying for all of God's people. Our prayers for others should dominate So if I'm going to pray with my eyes open, how can I be more alert and aware in my prayer life? I'm just going to go as, as briefly as I can here, and hopefully we will be able to pick up on this. First, I need to remember that I'm engaged in a battle. I need to remember that I'm engaged in a battle. Be alert. Understand that I have an enemy who is prowling around looking to devour me. Understand that the devil has schemes and fiery darts and they don't stop just because I'm tired. Be alert. Be awake. 
Second, I need to remember that I'm part of a family. Remember that I'm part of a family. Paul has gone to great lengths in the book of Ephesians to point out that God is glorified in the church. Though we are adopted as his children, but being adopted, we are part of a family. We are united to Christ when we believe, but we are united to one another. As you're united to Christ and I'm united to Christ, the division between us is broken. There's no longer black or white or male or female, Jew or Gentile. All that stuff goes away, and all that remains is Christ. That's the question. Are you in the family or are you not? So if I'm in the family, what do families do? They care about one another. They're invested in one another. If your family's not like that, I'm sorry. It doesn't change the reality. Many of us, because all of us as humans are flawed and sinful and broken, many of us come from families that are very much reflective of that. And it leaves gaps. So don't repeat it. Don't be that. And when we're talking about our spiritual family, they're going to disappoint you sometimes too. Surprise. But we pray for one another. Think about the people you're in this battle with. You are engaged in a battle, and in this war zone, you have your loved ones with you. They're not back stateside. They're in the hot zone with you. You better be praying. You better be working hard to make sure that you're doing everything you can to armor them up and to engage with the one who has all power. Remember that I'm engaged in a battle. Remember that I'm part of a family. Third, I need to remember that I've been saved with a purpose. That I've been saved with a purpose. Romans, I'm sorry, first, one of these books of the Bible, I know it's one of them. Ephesians, the one we're actually studying, chapter 2. You all know 8 and 9, right? We've heard it a thousand times. Hopefully it's committed to your heart, burned on your brain. It's by grace you've been saved. Unearned, unmerited favor from God. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. He gives you a, an already paid for gift. You unwrap it by trusting Him and believing it. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, and even that faith isn't from yourself. The only reason you're able to see it and accept it and receive it is because God has moved in you. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. But sometimes we forget verse 10. Verse 10 says, For we are God's workmanship, His masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which He prepared in advance for us to do. I'm not saved by works, but I am saved for works. God has a plan and a purpose. You have a mission if you've been saved. If you've been born again and received the gospel of grace, then it is your mission in life. 
and I am not playing lightly with these words. This is not an exaggeration. The reason you are on the planet is to extend the grace of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, to everyone else. Every other part of your life is just details. The job you have, the house you live in, the people you interact with, these are tools, these are means for the purpose of carrying out your mission of glorifying God, sharing the gospel of reconciliation, telling the other beggars where you found bread. If I remember that purpose, it will change the way I pray. If I remember that my purpose is bigger than my momentary circumstances, it changes the way I pray. Notice what Paul says in verses 19 and 20. He's in chains, right? He's been arrested. He's writing this while he's a prisoner. And his prayer is not, his prayer is not pray that this would be more comfortable for me. That's not even a headache. Pray that it goes away. I have, would definitely have a headache. And I would be asking for prayer. But Paul's focus is on his purpose. And he says, pray also for me that whenever I speak, I'm chained up, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Back in chapter 3, he was saying, God has blessed me with this incredible privilege of being able to preach this mystery to the Gentiles. And now he's saying, here in chains, pray that my purpose will be carried out. That's what matters. When we remember that we have a purpose, that we're part of a family, that we're in a battle, it changes how we pray. We become more alert and aware and we pray with our eyes open. Last point here. Last major point. Even the strongest soldiers struggle. Even the strongest soldiers struggle. As Shelley sang that song for us earlier, she's singing from the perspective of the Apostle Paul. I've been winning battles. I've been planting churches. I've been spreading the gospel throughout uh, Asia and Europe. And I'm, I'm eventually going to get to Rome. I'm, I'm writing the Bible. And people think, wow, Paul is awesome. He's so amazing. Nobody can do what Paul can do. But they don't see the wounds. Paul goes out of his way to tell the Corinthian church, we didn't come here speaking fancy words. We didn't use all the rhetoric. Paul's a very educated fellow. He didn't use that with them. He came that they might see the gospel, the simple gospel. We preach Christ and him crucified.
this way unless it's real in your life. Paul already has the knowledge of words. He needs the Spirit to give him words. It needs to be more than his flesh. It needs to come from God. He's praying that he would do it fearlessly because he's afraid that he will be afraid. He knows that in the moments of weakness, it's easy to fall down and just be a little more quiet to be Mr. Nice Christian. Because it's offensive to the Roman mind for him to say that there's only one God and that there's only one way to have a relationship with this God. I think the Roman mind's not that much different than us. It's offensive to us to hear that I cannot work my way to heaven. That every single person is born in sin and there are no true innocents. But that God has poured out His wrath. Oh my goodness, God has wrath? That's so offensive. He has poured out His wrath, His rightful judgment on His own Son so that you and I can turn to Him and receive life. It's offensive. And it makes the world around us angry. Why? Because they're still living in the kingdom of darkness. They don't even know it. And the devil hates the church as defectors. So when we stand for Christ... The devil gets riled up and he'll rile the world up against us. It has nothing to do at all with your political persuasion, with your intersectionality, with your education, with your wealth. People don't hate you for those things. They hate you for Christ. That's a different level of hatred. And it makes it really easy for us to say, well, I would talk about Jesus, but it's not okay on my job. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to miss out on a promotion because I am that Jesus freak person. We're coming to a time, and I won't spend time on this for this message, we're coming to a time when honestly serving Christ will be restricted in ways that we cannot currently imagine. It is coming. In many places around the world, it's already here. And it's easy for us to soften, to back down, to be polite. I'm not asking you to be impolite. I'm not asking you to be unkind. I am telling you that God demands that we know who we are and we stand. Even the strongest soldiers struggle. So the question that we need to ask ourselves as we pray, as we employ God's armor in battle is who needs my support that I might not expect? You see, this is the surprise in this text, that Paul, the one who's writing, is struggling with this fear issue. 
We're going along. Paul's the superstar. He is the, he is the superhero of Christendom. He's writing the scriptures for crying out loud. He's planting churches everywhere he goes. The gospel goes with him. So it's a surprise for us to read that Paul says, you know what, I'm, I'm afraid I might be too timid. Who is it in your life who serve on the front lines where the, where the battle is hottest. And there are lots of different ways that that might be. It might be an individual who is, you know, you know they're dealing with a family member and they're in the midst of, of trying to bring them to Christ and there's something going on there. There is a battle and you need to pray for them. Or it may be someone who is uh, working as an attorney in defense of, of the faith and they need your prayer. It may be a missionary out in the field. We need to be aware of what's going on in the global church as well as in the local church so that we can pray for those who serve on the front lines. Next, we need to pray for those who serve in leadership. Paul is very clear with uh, Timothy, who's the pastor at Ephesus. And when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, he says, first of all, I urge that prayers and supplications be made for all of those in leadership, and he's specifically speaking of those in government, so that we as Christ followers might lead a quiet life by praying for those who are leading our government. And don't forget, as Paul's doing this, Nero is the emperor. There's just only wickedness going on. The real persecution of Christians hasn't happened yet, but Nero kind of, he just kind of persecutes whoever he feels like it, and Christians make good scapegoats at various times. He's not saying pray for them because they're Christians or because they're godly, but pray for them. We're also told to pray for our leadership within the church. Pray for the wisdom of those who guide us. Here are overseers, and yes, the pastor, I covet your prayers. Because I can't do this in my own flesh, my own strength. I'm not smart enough or wise enough or strong enough. So those in leadership who are guiding God's people need us to support them in the battle. Those who serve on the front lines, those who serve in leadership... I think this is a super important one. Those who serve without glory. Those who serve without glory. Now, it's easy for us to neglect the front lines and the leaders when we see them as superheroes. And we need to remember that the warrior is a child. That's true for all of us. But we very seldom forget about them because they're out in front all the time, right? When, when we think of, uh, of, you know, combat situations almost always our minds and we see this on the news it, it gravitates toward those who tote guns and, and drive tanks and are out there on the front lines we see that a lot generals get a lot of press 
But we don't spend a lot of time talking about the support staff, the supply chain, those people who are, are doing the work that makes everything else possible and they need support. In the church, it might be the person that's working in the nursery or, or teaching the children. I can't tell you how crucial this is. When we teach children, we are raising up an army and you are deciding now how important their lives are. And it tells us something if we think it's more important for them to learn the alphabet and math than it is for them to learn the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not taking anything away from regular mainstream education. You got to read, you got to write, otherwise the Bible is going to be blocked to you. But you can be illiterate and go to heaven. And you can have a PhD and go to hell. We're shaping lives. So these people who are teaching downstairs, you, how many of you even know who's teaching downstairs right now? Pray for the people behind the scenes that you don't see. Pray for the people at the sound desk back there who are making all of these things possible for us to, to communicate online so that people outside of these walls can get the message of Jesus Christ. Pray for those who serve without glory. Pray for those frontline missionaries who are out preaching the gospel, but pray for those behind-the-scenes missionaries. We uh, had friends that served with uh, Christian missionary technical services because missionaries need mechanics too. These are important things. Lastly, it's easy for us to forget the front lines in leadership because they seem untouchable, invincible. And we forget they need our support. It's easy for us to forget those who serve without glory because we don't see them doing it. There's a category that we see that we often neglect sometimes because our attitudes are wrong and that's those who are wounded. Those who are wounded, pray for the wounded soldiers in this spiritual battle. Some folks have been so beat down by the devil that they're just blocked and they can't seem to get out of it. And they're your brothers and sisters when they're wounded, the same as when they're fighting on and they need our support. They don't need our judgment, and they often don't even need our instruction. They need our prayer. And we need to engage heaven on their behalf. Prayer unleashes divine power against the enemy. There's never a wrong time to pray, though we do need to be aware of how we pray. We need to pray with our eyes open, alert, and aware of those that are in our family, aware of the battle that we're in and the purpose for which we're in. Prayer is, at its root, a relationship-based communication with God. This is why Paul says, do all of these things, put on all this armor, take up these, these items, praying. 
our memory verse, Ephesians 6.18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions and with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. Prayer is how we employ God's armor in battle. The key to spiritual victory is constant reliance on the God who fights for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have not only equipped us for battle, you have instructed us. And as we have your word to guide us, Lord, we ask that it would be more than just words, more than information that we take in, knowledge that we gain. But we ask that you would speak to us through your spirit, that you would take hold of us. Step on our toes, Lord. Convict us. Encourage us when we are weak. Strengthen us. Forgive us for all of our wanderings and all of our sin. Engage us in the battle. Father, in this moment, we pray for the souls of our loved ones who have not yet realized that their entire existence is for your glory, that you would take hold of them, that you would show them that their sin separates them from you, and that you would make even more clear the reality that Jesus Christ takes away that sin so that we can be your forever children, accepted and dearly loved. Just for the asking. Lord, be glorified in us, in your church, as we come together to do battle in prayer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.